Hey, this is Sailor. Welcome to another episode of Metal Rock and Whiskey. Good evening, everyone. How's it going, guys? Hey, Sailor. How are you doing, Sailor? It's good to be back. Yes, welcome back. How was your, um, what was it, your cock class? What the hell was it? Oh, so, (laughs) Center of Citrus Kinship. I heard about that. (laughs) And um, all I can say is it didn't change my mind. (laughs) Ah, Jesus. (laughs) Cock doesn't have much influence on me, sorry. Oh, I missed the dad jokes. Uh, well, I'm anyway. here. I'm alive. I'm not sniffling as much, but I'm still sniffling. <laughs> there's like, there's like so much pollen in the air. I feel like I'm swimming through it outside, and I have the worst. Metal Rock and Whiskey ever. episode sixty six now with fewer sniffles. <laughs> Let's hope. We hope. Mm-hmm. We hope. So, uh. We are very close to having our Glen Cairn, our special Metal Rock and Whiskey Glen Cairn <laughs> shipped out. I'm so excited. Um, hey, listeners, if you have not gotten yours already, you definitely want to grab it now at a very special price. And we have stickers and buttons. Um, please visit our Patreon site. We've got lots and lots of goodies and special stuff that we will be giving you guys. So um, have a look at that. And if you're interested... Who's cork popping? <laughs> Matthew. Oh, sorry. It is metal rock and whiskey. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. If you're interested in getting one of these nifty Glen Cairns, just send me a message on Facebook or Instagram and I will make sure that you get one. All right. And now it's my chance to get on this discussion about the uh 90s alternative and grunge rock. Yes, yeah, you, you missed a lot. Ed. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, ever since I think what the last one I was in on was Nirvana, I think it was. I think so, but yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've missed a couple of good ones. Yeah, Alice in Chains and Stone Temple Pu- 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 I can't talk. Stone Temple <laughs> Pilot. Say that sometimes <laughs> fast. Um are two of my favorite rock bands from the nineties. So I was super bummed to miss those. But uh tonight um, we do have another good one, a very popular alt band from the '90s. Any uh, anyone know who it is? Anyone care to guess out there? Well, if you know, I can't hear you because we're recording in a studio and you're not. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, let's kick this event off. right as you can tell by that last little musical interlude we're going to be talking about none other than pearl jam and we will be doing a three-way battle a metal rock and whiskey menage a trois if you will and it will be the albums 10 from 1991 versus versus from 1993 (laughs) versus (laughs) Pathology <laughs> from 1994. <laughs> That's confusing. So fucking confusing. <laughs> uh. 
Yes, the album 10, the album Versus, and the album Vitology. We will be battling all three of those against each other. Yes. That cleared up a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Clear as we mud. Should, we should just say VS. Um, no, no, I'm the only one. Okay, cool. Anyway, we drink whiskey on the show, if you guys haven't figured it out. <laughs> I will be doing the whiskey segment today, but first, as we usually do, let's go around the horn and find out what my cohorts here are drinking. Who wants to go first? I think Ed should go first because he's been away for so long. I think, oh, I yeah. think he should. <clears throat> well, yeah. while I was on my travels, I did happen to go through um, Madison, Wisconsin, and picked up a store pick of Elijah Craig Small Batch. Um, it is from Riley's Wines of the World in Madison, Wisconsin, right there, pretty much on the campus of uh, University of Wisconsin. And um, the only reason I knew about this place was I saw our buddy uh, Scott Page do a review. Um, he he has the uh, YouTube show My Bourbon Journey. He did a review of their um, Knob Creek Rye pick, and I saw that, and so I said I got to stop and check out this uh, Riley's while I'm in Madison. And I saw they had an Elijah Craig uh, barrel pick. So that's what I picked up because I'm a huge fan of the great Reverend Elijah Craig. And how is it? And it is a very good. It is a very fine example of Elijah Craig. It's pretty much everything I want in uh, a bourbon. It's got the sweetness I like. It's got a little bit of spiciness. Got those nice um, cinnamon and little toasted, uh, like, um, how to describe it? I'm horrible at describing whiskey. <laughs> I know if I like it, but uh, yeah, it's just really good. So it's good. I'm not disappointed. Good. Right. Doesn't good. taste like toothpaste. No. Good. It's not, so, so we're doing it well then. doesn't have that charcoal toothpaste. That, yeah. uh, <laughs> that heavy charcoal or menthol. Um, so I guess your your cock classes did work see (laughs) (laughs) I guess we'll find out next time he gets a citrus note on something yeah yeah, if they really work indeed indeed. great all right what are you drinking sailor I am not drinking whiskey tonight (gasps) the hell you say I know I know it's an abomination but as summer is approaching my friends we all know that Sailor turns into a gin whore in the summer. So I am drinking gin. I was given a sample from my old homestead, Indian Creek Distillery in Southwest Ohio. And they, we always talked about making a gin. And a couple of times I screwed around with their white rye and um, infused some juniper into it and some other botanicals and, you know, was just playing around with it. And since I've been gone, they did a barrel-aged gin, and it is super unique. Their stills, it's funny because the minute I open anything of theirs, I know instantly. I can smell it across the room that it came from them because they have the second oldest um, double copper pot still still in use in the world. No joke. So this is cool. for real. They didn't even know that. They didn't even know the realm of it. And someone, I think it was um, the History Channel came in and did like a little tiny documentary on them. 
And they're the ones that did the Providence and told them. And they were like, oh, my God. I mean, we knew they were old, but that's cool. Um, So there's a very distinct flavor that comes off of these stills. They're small, so, you know, they can't do huge production. But um, the flavor is very funky. It's the best, not a bad funky. It's a good funky. It's a Mm. strange, weird funkiness. Um, But it's delicious. So this is, unlike any other gin... I've had like unlike any barrel aged gin, and I think I've probably tasted close to nearly every gin that exists on the planet <laughs> because I'm such a gin nut. I'm a sucker for a good gin and tonic in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little squeeze of lime. Oh There's yeah, nothing so refreshing. Like it. This oh, yeah. though is like this is something else. So I was starting to write down note, and I've only done two tastings of this, and I usually do three or four. And my first wave of notes, I keep going back to. I'm getting ginger beer and licorice and honey and lots of baked green apples. Mm. It smells like apple pie to me. Ooh. It's so, it's just, it's like apple Sounds pie. Amazing. Yeah. It is, it's, I don't know that I would call it a gin though. Um, it's, it's, it's like, you know, the moonshine apple pie. That's what it, that's what it reminds it me like, of. But mm. well, the, on the it, nose but and the, the palate. Yeah. It, it literally tastes like an apple pie. It's crazy. Um, mm like a liquid apple pie but this then it's like in the finish i started to get fennel and anise and i started to pick up some of the some of the botanicals in the finish so um this would be really good in a cocktail really good it's super it almost sounds like a cocktail just the way you're describing Mm -hmm. it you know it's amazing that when i was in the business and talking to a lot of people on the distribution side and they said that they all pretty much predicted that gin and craft gins would be the next big thing. Oh, hell yeah. For people, yeah, for, for people of certain ages, younger people in particular, uh, gin cocktails and, and what yep. have you, because I was never a gin person. I probably had every London dry gin there was, very cookie cutter, and then craft gin stuff started happening, and there's so much diversity yeah. in craft gins. Oh, there's and a people ton are of exper- They're experimenting and doing different things. Yep. Um, there's a lot of great stuff out there. A lot of great stuff. This well, is... the nice thing about the craft gins is these small little distilleries don't have to wait like two to four years to start making money. Exactly. On it. Exactly. Well, yeah, and that's very important for them. Um, this is called Gypsy Gin, and um, it's just it's it it reminds me of I've had a lot of barrel aged gin because that's the new trend in gin. You know, the brown brown gin I like to call it, and um, it gives a whole other level. One of my favorite gins is actually still Hendrix. I mean, I drink different gins for a lot of different reasons, but that Hendrix, man, I get that cucumber right away. And I'm someone that puts cucumbers in my gin and tonics, not limes. I've always, Mm. well, and I'll just, I'll just mush a whole bunch of them in there. And I used to take, before I really knew anything about gins, I would just take whatever crap gin I could find and I would pour it in a jar and put cucumber in there to infuse it myself, you know, before I even knew that's what I was doing. I just wanted to pick up that flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I love that for, I don't know, like I usually have like six or seven different gin styles on my bar shelf. So for different cocktails, you know, like a martini, I would never put Hendrix in a martini. That would be weird to me. Totally weird. Um, yeah, I, I think it to me it depends on the cocktail. It depends on the way I'm going to drink it. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm drinking tonight. All right, sounds good. Cheating awesome. on the whiskey. <sighs> oh well. Oh well. What are you gonna do? 
So as I said before, I have the incredible pleasure of doing tonight's whiskey pairing for Pearl Jam. So as we all know, a lot of the big figures in this musical time period, we've lost a lot of big figures um, from this musical time frame and this uh, genre, if you will. Um, you know, just in the past decade, you know, we've lost Wieland, uh, Cornell, we lost Staley, obviously Cobain uh, many years ago. And every time I feel like I see someone from this time period in this genre pass away, unfortunately, there's always this recurring joke that people seem to put on social media. Always seems to surface when something like this happens. And it kind of goes along the lines of this. Uh, rest in peace, insert name here. Somebody please find Eddie Vedder and put him in a bubble. <laughs> Obvious, obviously, so he does not suffer the same fate as many of his contemporaries. Uh, but joking aside, there's something to that because the man and his band... Um, are really timeless and kind of, to me anyway, a lasting relic of a window of great music gone by. Uh, so Pearl Jam has persisted amazingly, even at the expense of almost completely shunning their own fame uh, and doing pretty much anything in their power to destroy it, as we'll probably get into later in the show. Uh, maybe they're just humble. Maybe they hate it. Who knows? Uh, Vetter's style and his mannerisms in performing have led many to say that he is probably the most imitated frontman of all time, uh, something I do agree with. Uh, this persistence, this timelessness and humbleness, uh, for me, also pertains to a certain man in the bourbon industry, and that is the legendary one and only. Any guesses? No. Anybody? Timmy um, Russell. What'd you say? Jimmy Russell. Yes. Very good. <laughs> Ooh. Yes. Good guess. And I actually will be the first to say this. I moved to put him in a bubble also. So, oh, I yes. mean, there are <laughs> several people I wanted him and, and Freddie Johnson. Yes. Oh I want them in yes. bubbles so bad. Yes. Yeah. So he has been a true beacon, uh, as we can all agree, of all these traits for more than six decades. And I think most in the business would love to imitate and emulate what Jimmy Russell has done and accomplished, much like musicians have done with Eddie Vedder. So, of course, I needed to go with a wild turkey expression if I'm comparing Eddie to Jimmy. Uh, I needed to go with a style of whiskey and a grain. Not just any wild turkey, but I need to go with a style of whiskey and a grain that is also persistent, something that is timeless. And that is also a lasting relic in this country. And that is good old American rye whiskey. So putting all of these facets together, my whiskey pairing for Pearl Jam is Wild Turkey Rye. The standard 81 proof. Now, I could have gone with the 101 rye or the Russell's Reserve rye, but with these whiskey pairings, I always prefer to go with a whiskey that I have some personal experience with, uh, just to get that out there. Because I do think uh, I've read great things about those other two, although I have not tried it myself. So the 101 rye was extremely popular with bars and restaurants for cocktails. Um, so this particular rye, the 81 proof, was released in 2012 in part to really make their stock of rye last. Um, it's a blend of four to five year ryes and aged in barrels with a number four char. I have tasted this rye a few times and honestly every time I taste it, the whiskey is a complete mixed bag for me. Uh, not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, for instance, tonight, before recording, 
seems very mellow with a lot more fruit notes taking the reins with honey and some mint. Other times it seems to be a bastion for everything a great American rye should be spicy and dry, robust and bold. Um, and as I'm tasting it through this recording so far, it seems to keep changing. Um, so wild Turkey rye 81 proof is my pairing for Pearl jam. Oh man. Good choice that, uh, haven't tried that one yet, but, would love to haven't tried yeah. any of the wild turkey think, rye yet. I'm still kind of there aren't a whole lot of rye I've tried so far. Um, tried a few notable ones, but um, yeah, I need to start looking into more. Yeah, more I mean, it seems sure. to take it seems to take a backseat to the 101 rye, which I guess they just re-released recently, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, I, but, not, I've yeah. seen that popping up yeah. in social media. Yeah, yeah um, but. Um, very good for the price, man. I mean, it's twenty five bucks. I love so that. That's bad. yeah. I think no. you guys know that is one of my favorite rise. Um, I would say that. I don't. It used to be my favorite rye. Now George Dickel is my favorite rye, and that's a little indicative of my change in geography. When I lived in Cincinnati, I had access to a much better selection of whiskey at a much better price than out here mm-hmm. in Washington State. And it's unfortunate that it has totally changed what I am able to drink and what I pick up every day. It's a it's a damn shame that we can't have federalized prices so that it's the same price across the board. Yeah, I can um, tell you, it does help being a Kentucky border state. It does. I mean, it yeah. was... It was phenomenal. I would drive over the river to Newport, Kentucky, and I would um, purchase whiskey there. Um, Ohio itself would just get much better allocations. Um, sometimes I would just, if something was coming out that I knew was going to like fly off the shelves, I would just drive down in the freaking distillery in Kentucky. It was only like two hours, you know, and I would just get it from the tasting room and be like, well, I'll have lunch as well. Um, yeah, it's just... It's it sucks, but but my drinking habits have changed a lot. So um, I have to say, taste wise, it's a close. I think it's a close battle, actually, the wild turkey rye and the George Dickel rye. Now you've had really? that the new Old Forester rye, haven't you? Yes. Oh God, yeah, so good. But That's another good one. Access to Old Forester out here is very difficult and incredible. Almost, I would say, probably close to double what it would cost me when I was mm. in Ohio. Yeah. Um, because those, I've got the tax uh, taxes out here. there. Insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it really prohibits. Um, the luxury market is much more unattainable here for whiskey. So it, it's more of a challenge and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shame. It's a damn shame. Yeah. yeah. It's bullshit. Absolute bullshit. I would love to see where in the hell all of the um, taxes are going for marijuana and alcohol, considering we have so many breweries in this state, we have, I mean, the population of Seattle alone with legal cannabis and that almost 30% markup on retail spirits. Where the fuck is this money going? Because well, you know, those, these are like the worst roads I've ever seen. <laughs> those state reps need their pensions. Yeah, apparently. Yep. yep. Fuckers. 
Well, good job, Matt. I really liked your pairing. Yes, that was awesome. That was awesome. Very that was good. really, as usual, really, really cool. I like it. Thank you. Thank you. Not as good as mine, but I like it. Oh. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> Yours are the best. Yours are the best. Of course, of course. Mm-hmm. All I right. Keep, I just want to keep my job. But I'm talking about it. <laughs> yeah, Let's okay. get into this discussion. Hey guys, I want to tell you about my new friends, Liquid Death. Did you know that the average aluminum can contains over 70% re- recycled material and the average plastic bottle contains only 3%? Aluminum is actually infinitely recyclable. I didn't know that, but it's true. Uh, cool fact, all of the aluminum produced since 1888, over 75% of it is still in current use. That's just nuts. When plastic bottles are recycled, the plastic is such low quality that it can't be made into new bottles. That's dumb. The material is usually sold to China to make cheap carpets and textiles, and a lot of that ends up in landfills. Sadly, if plastic production isn't curbed, plastic pollution will outweigh fish pound per pound by 2050. So we should all be murdering our thirst with 100% mountain water from the Alps. And that's exactly what Liquid Death does. But how does it work, you ask? Well, let me tell you. Our proprietary thirst murdering, says Liquid Death, process begins with forming a rope of veins that will wrap around your thirst's head and strangle it. Once Liquid Death reaches your thirst's brain, all of your thirst's memories will be replaced with repeating loops of its own head imploding. Damn. Which is exactly what happens next by causing your thirst's head to implode and its brain to squirt out of its ears. I mean, that sounds like it would work. So a little bit about the company. It was a handful of people that started Liquid Death with the diabolical plan to completely obliterate bottled water, marketing cliches by taking the world's healthiest beverage, mountain water, and making it just as funny and stupid and entertaining as the unhealthy brands across energy drinks, soda, and beer. Also, plastic water bottles are complete shit, but aluminum cans are far and away the most sustainable beverage container by virtually every measure. So my friends, let me tell you, we all need to start murdering our thirst with Liquid Death Mountain Water. It is 100% mountain water from the Alps, truly, not like what is in most of those um, water bottles. It's usually tap water or who knows what. Um, And the cans are freaking cool, and the name is freaking cool, and it's a really awesome cause. I mean, if it's just so easy to grab this aluminum can instead of a plastic bottle, and we're still going to have healthy oceans for our kids and grandkids, then do it. So hashtag death to plastic. And uh, you can find more about Liquid Death on our Instagram page and in our Facebook group, and we thank them for their support of the Metal Rockin' Whiskey Show. Soon she was down, soon he was low And I caught her past a holy note She had to turn around When she couldn't hold So, uh, like I always ask before we get into the heart of the discussion, I want to know, I always like to know everybody's backstories, since like we do a backstory on the band, I like to hear your backstories on your relationship to this band. So, um, you know, were you a Pearl Jam fan 
when they came out initially and started or did you come to them later or do you not like them um ed you go first all right well it's not my story isn't very complex or long um yeah i was obviously in the 90s early 90s when pearl jam hit it big um i was in my early 20s so you know they came in at a good time for me um when the album 10 hit man um <laughs> that just dominated the radio oh God, yeah. of the time oh my yeah. gosh yeah that was um nice. so yeah so pretty much i i would always listen to them on the radio um i don't know how i didn't buy that cd you know i bought the allison chain cds um stone temple pilots but for some reason i never got around to getting pearl jam but uh but yeah i was a big fan of that album around that time um from or the songs that i heard on the radio i should say because i never really um listened to the album per se but uh yeah didn't go any concerts or anything but uh you know eddie vetter uh kind of have a a little partial to him being a Evanston, Illinois native. Um, so yeah, that's, like I said, that's, that's about it. That's about the best I can say, you know, big fan. Matt, what about you? Well, I'm a fan, but like with all the bands in this series we're doing, it's all in retrospect because I was obviously when these albums were released a little too young to really fully appreciate uh, them or have the means to, in which to acquire the music other than having two older brothers who occasionally have have the music but um, couldn't always count on them all the time uh, but you know it's like with STP what I said it's all radio play everything I got from them was from the radio never owned, owned an album grew up kind of you know I like Nirvana got into Nirvana pretty deep on that episode Always saw them as kind of the number two, maybe the number three behind Nirvana and that sort of genre. Really, in my time period when I was in high school and 20 years old, the kind of stuff that they were putting out then was very poppy. Um, you know, some of the songs that they were releasing were, you know, on pop radio stations and, and stuff. So maybe that coupled with not really being that familiar with them kind of made me think of them differently. Um, but uh, yeah, not much of a relationship other than the hits for me. It's interesting that you, what you just said, because this is an argument I have gotten into countless times in the past, what, 20 something years now. <laughs> um, 10 came out before Nevermind. Yes. Number one. Yes. Uh, I don't think the two sounds have anything to do with each other whatsoever. They don't. They don't. don't see, not at all. The no. only relationship I see is that they're rock bands. Exactly. They fall inside the main header of rock. The end. That's it. So I, it has always bothered me when people compare them to Nirvana or say, well, they were... So you know at times I've had arguments where people are like, oh, they were just ripping off Nirvana. I'm like, funny, because they fucking recorded their album first. So how the fuck could they be ripping them off? Yeah. Literally impossible. Uh, but what we've seen through this is that 
people, music fans, were they tried to condition them to putting them all into one category. Yeah. And clearly all of these bands are complete, are very different from each other. Oh, they're so different. If there's so one thing we can come out of this with, it's that conclusion, I think. I don't even see those two as being in the same subgenre. Me either. Me yeah. either, but they were. They were considered a, they're, they're another Seattle grunge rock band, but that they were trying to be the commercial. Okay, we'll get into this at some. This is not yeah. the time to get in. <laughs> we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Um, so let's talk about how they formed first. So um, Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament, Ament were members of of a band called um, Green River, which was it. They were actually a grunge band. Um, and, uh, that was like the mid eighties. Um, they toured and they were actually pretty successful. If you were from the West coast at the time, everybody knew green river. Um, I had a college roommate who was from Portland. Yeah. Portland. And, uh, she would her and her brother were big rockers and would tell me about all these, like, uh, like bands from their area, local bands. Um, so they had, you know, pretty moderate success. They disbanded in 87. And uh, so Gossard and Ament began playing with a vocalist named Andrew Wood. And they eventually, eventually became Mother Love Bone. Do either of you guys know Mother Love Bone? I've heard of them. But I used to really like them. I have a question. Did, do, do you even know? Did they get their name Green River from the drink? You know, the pop Green River? I have no idea. Okay. I have no idea. <laughs> have you even heard of it? I don't know how no. regional it is. No, no? never heard of okay. it. In my life. It's a it's a pretty tame name for a band considering some of the other names. Uh, yeah, that we uh, like, what was the last one? Shirley Temple's. Oh, I got, I got a yeah. I got a, I got a whole thing about that. We'll get into oh, later. God. Yeah. Um. All right. So they they become Mother Love Bone. I I really liked Mother Love Bone back in the day. So eighty eight eighty nine they recorded and they started touring and they became really popular. Um, they were, they were popular into the early nineties. I think it was funny because there was, uh, we were listening to a mother love bone album and then Pearl Jam came. I was, I was very good friends with a band in upstate New York, um, in this city where my dad grew up. And, um, I, I, I lived we all lived together for a while and I would, uh, do their merch when they toured in the summers, things like that. And um, they were like, I would say they were very like Mother Love Bone would be a good kind of, they were kind of like that. So we're listening to Mother Love Bone and then Pearl Jam comes on because it's when they 10 was very popular, comes on MTV and nobody made the correlation. Nobody at all, even though we were friends. I didn't either of Mother Love Bone. Mm. Um, So Polygram signed them in 89 and their first album was called Apple. It was released in 1990. But the reason they broke up is because four months after the album came out, Andrew Wood, their vocalist, died of a heroin overdose. Sorry I didn't see him, but I'm glad to talk. Oh, I, oh, I'm still alive. It's just terrible, terrible news. Um, but of course, you know, how could you not be? Emmett and Gossard were devastated by his death, and Mother, they just never recovered as a band, and, you know, that leads to them breaking up. So uh, Gossard spends his time right after this writing material that was harder, much harder. Uh, and after a few months, he started practicing with uh, fellow Seattle musician Mike McCready, whose band Shadow had actually just broken up also. 
McCready uh, reminds me of Mr. McFeely. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And by the way, isn't that the most inappropriate name for a guy on a children's show now? Mr. McFeely. Oh, McFeely. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, so um, after practicing for a while, they actually did send out a five-song demo tape in order to find a singer and a drummer. They actually gave former Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer Jack Irons the demo to see if he would be interested in joining the band. Amazingly. By the way, I just want to say something real quick. I chose the song after we discussed Andrew Wood dying of a heroin overdose on purpose. So you can yeah. send me your your hate mail if you want, but there's a was, reason I did that. Yeah, I was going to ask if you did that on purpose. <laughs> I did. You, you read talk about this poor guy dying of a heroin overdose. Yeah, but read the lyrics Eddie, to Alive. Eddie yeah. uh, better bragging about still being alive. Mm, so. not, not quite, but, but you know. The song's not about what you I'm, think it's I'm about. It's not best. about what you think it's about, exactly. Yeah. So I'm yeah. curious to see who gets why that I felt that was appropriate. But if you don't know the song really well, you're probably like, what a bitch. so going back to jack irons um he i guess he passed on the invitation but he gave the demo to his friend um who happened to be none other than singer eddie vetter and at the time um vetter was the lead vocalist for a band in san diego called san diego uh called bad radio um he listened to the tape shortly before going surfing um, where the lyrics came to him. And um, then he re- recorded vocals to three of the songs, Alive, Once, and Footsteps, in what he later described as a mini opera entitled Mama Son. Okay? Now, imagine... Now, yeah. Sorry. Imagine ahead, no. you're just recording back, like, okay... Here's what I came up with on the music you sent me. And one of the songs is alive. Fuck off. Like, really? <laughs> like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, it was just so easy for you, surfer boy. All right, then. <laughs> surfer boy. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Vetter, uh, he sent that tape back to his um, the band with his vocals. And, of course, they were impressed. And then so they yeah. flew um, Eddie up to Seattle for an audition. And, you know, as history goes, we all know what happened next. Now, interestingly enough, he gave the demo to Eddie Vedder after passing on the invitation to be their drummer. Now, if he says yes to be their drummer, do we ever get Eddie Vedder in Pearl Jam? I don't think so. Hindsight. Yeah, I don't think so. Incredible. That's why I was like, thank God. Not only am I not a huge fan of that dude, but yeah. Thank you, uh, Jack Irons, for saying that. Yes, thank you very much. Yes. So um, so they added another dude, Dave Crusin, on drums, and the band took the name Mookie Blaylock after a basketball player named Mookie Blaylock. Fuck me, really? So <laughs> we'll get into that in a minute. Um, yes. Their first show was in October of ninety. And by December of 90, they had already opened for Alice in Chains in Seattle. And they uh, were the opening band, actually, for a short, the, the facelift tour in 91 that Alice in Chains did. So not so bad uh, as your start there. Um, oh, I, I tell you what, I, I would have hated to be M- M- Mookie 
after Star Wars came out. The first <laughs> time. He was probably a kid. <laughs> That's true. That's hey, true. Lucky. Good point. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> um, so the band Mookie Blaylock fuck, was signed to Epic Records. And thank God they renamed themselves Pearl Jam. Um, at the time, Eddie Vedder said the name Pearl Jam was a reference to his great-grandmother, Pearl, who was married to a Native American and had a special recipe for peyote-laced jam. <laughs> cool <laughs> granny. Okay? Oh. So let me, let, me, let me put something in perspective for the listener here. So we have Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, Alice in Chains. Yeah. This could have easily been fecal matter, <laughs> fuck, Shirley Temple's pussy and Mookie, <laughs> Mookie Blaylock. <laughs> Let that sink in for a second. You know how they say for businesses, location, 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 band names, band yes. names, band, band names. names yes. Don't name your band fucking Christmas. Don't name your band Shirley Temple's pussy. Don't name your band fecal, fecal matter. matter. <laughs> because it does matter. <laughs> fecal does matter, kids. <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable oh. but sailor yes it does seem uh as in a ninth in a 2006 rolling stone story Bedditer actually admitted that this story about the cool granny was total bullshit damn it yes yes uh <laughs> even though he he indeed had a great grandma named pearl uh Admet and mccready explained that Admet came up with pearl and that the band later settled on pearl jam after attending a concert by none, uh, by Neil Young, in which he actually extended his songs as improvisations of 15 to 20 minutes in length. God help us. Yes. Um, <laughs> so now they are no longer Mookie Blaylock. They are Pearl Jam. And they <sighs> entered Seattle's London Bridge Studios in March of 1991 to record what will become their debut album, Ten. McCready went on to say that Ten was mostly Stone and Jeff. Me and Eddie were along for the ride at that time, which to me is amazing. Yeah, that's consider, yeah. Considering the work that Vetter does on that album. Yeah. Um, uh, Cruz left the band actually in May 1991 after unfortunately checking himself into rehab. Uh, he was replaced by Matt Chamberlain, and the revolving door of drummers continues, yeah. um, who had previously played with Eddie Brickle and the New Bohemians. How and, awful. <laughs> Yeah, and, I, and Sorry. As, <laughs> I, know, I know that's exactly now that piece of shit song stuck in my head. <laughs> I'm not aware of too many things. Fuck off. <laughs> but I love, I love why he left the band. This, this is my favorite part. And after only playing a handful of shows, the revolving door continues, and Chamberlain left, left to join the Saturday Night Live band. I mean. This, you know, Pearl Jam is not big yet. So I get it. Like, that's a huge gig. But it's also, do you think it's fun being in the Saturday Night Live band? I feel like it would be kind of boring. Yeah. I think mean, about all the people you get to meet, though, being in the band. But do though, you? Kind of cool. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, at the time, you can't, you can't poo-poo it at the time. It no, that's sense. true. But yeah. don't you think he's like, damn it, I could have been in Pearl Jam. Well, yeah, because as far as... I'm a, nobody knows me, I'm in the Saturday Night Live. As far band. as you're giving up your creative freedom and not growing as a musician because you're yeah. in the Saturday Night Live fucking band. Yeah, exactly. You know? Right. So, uh, <laughs> well... Basically uh, a stu- uh, studio musician at that point. 
Exactly. Yeah. Not, but you uh, don't even get to like do different shit. Like if you're a session musician, at least you get to do all kinds of different shit. But you're just playing for a damn studio audience every Saturday night. That was the incidental sad. music. I don't know if anybody's ever been in the Saturday Night Live band. Please contact us and refute this information we're giving out. Yes, yeah, so or if anyone's actually <laughs> anyone's actually gone to see a Saturday Night Live episode live, let us know what the actual band yeah. is. Is it actually a lot cooler than it sounds? Yes, I don't think so. Maybe. <laughs> think so. Well, actually, before or I should say after leaving the band, Chamberlain suggested Dave a bruzzi bruzzi. Abruzzi. Come on, Mr. Italian over there. That's a lot of Isn't it like the region? Well, if I say it, if if I say it like an Italian, it's probably easy to say. They have Abruzzi. Abruzzi. That's his replacement. Yeah. Uh, hey, wait a second. Hold on. Yeah. Sorry. I have to I have to interrupt the Abruzzi's for a second. <laughs> so when Pearl Jam went on Saturday Night Live to play, dude was in the Saturday Night Live band watching them play. <laughs> <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> that must have sucked. <laughs> I know those guys. Yeah, here's the biggest band in rock right now. But you, you sit over there with your trumpet, dude. You're cool. You're fine. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> so Bruzy actually joined the group and played the rest of their live shows, supporting the album Ten. The album released on August 27th, 1991, a great month, two months of releases, as we've yeah. discussed on the show. Yeah. Uh, 10 actually named after one Mookie Blaylock's jersey number. Uh, they were really into him for some reason. I mean, uh, they must have been some big fucking basketball fans because this yeah. is like, this is ridiculous. He, he didn't even play for Seattle at that what point. Did he play I, don't for? Think, I don't think he ever played I'll in look Seattle. It up. Yeah, please look what? it up. Are you serious? Uh, I swear, okay, yeah, because when Seattle actually had a team back then, I don't actually think he played for them. Aye, aye, aye. Uh, the album was actually slow to sell to start, but by the second half of 92, as we've seen with a lot of these you know, debut albums of alt-rock bands around this time, it became a breakthrough success, actually being certified gold and reaching number two on the Billboard charts. Ten produced the hit singles Alive, Even Flow, and Jeremy. Uh, originally interpreted as an anthem by many, Ten played on the Billboard charts for nearly five years. And has gone to become one of the highest-selling rock records ever, going 13 times platinum. Good lord. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, that's Damn. pretty huge. Um, so, wait, real quick. Mickey Blaylock. You're right. He never even played for Seattle. He played for... Um, he was in the NBA. <clears throat> played for New, the New Jersey Nets, the Atlanta Hawks, and the Golden State Warriors. So, was it maybe... Do you think it was Vetter? Who was the fan since he's, well, he's not even from California. He was just living, who the fuck knows? I don't know. Who knows? I don't understand. He was, he doesn't even see, it doesn't even seem like career highlights. His highlights aren't even that great. What were the, what was the big deal about this guy? I know, I know the name. That's basically all I know about him is that his, it it was his name. His Mookie. (laughs) Mookie Blaylock. I mean, come on. Jesus. Oi. Okay. Continue. Sorry. All right, continuing on. <laughs> now with the ex- the success of Ten, very big success of Ten, uh, Pearl Jam became a key member of the Seattle grunge explosion. Um, but I can't explain why. No, that's, this, but that's uh, how stupidly, they were. Stupidly, 
this band was criticized in the music press. Um, British Music Magazine, NME, said that Pearl Jam was, quote, trying to steal money from young alternative kids' pockets. What the fuck? What does that even mean? I I don't even know what that means. The whole, I went into a fucking rabbit hole. Let me tell you guys. I went down a fucking rabbit hole. And in what month are we going to do it? We're going to talk about these fucking music magazines. We're going to dedicate a whole show to it, I think, in September. Um, The the bizarrity of, first of all, they're key members of the Seattle grunge scene, although they're not grunge. Fine, whatever. They're coming out at the same time and they're rock. We've we've been through this already. But this... So the, the shit that they took made no sense like they never even claimed they were even a type of band they're like they never even said they're like a rock band and if there was ever a band who wouldn't try to steal money from people it would it's be this them. fucking band as we will discuss later <laughs> jesus seriously yeah. any yeah. like they're probably the most non-commercial commercial band since i don't know since who i don't even know i, don't know. I can't think of so... anybody yeah. So Ugh. joining in the pylon, uh, Kurt Cobain angrily attacked Pearl Jam, claiming the band were commercial sellouts <laughs> and argued 10 was not a true alternative album because it had so many prominent guitar leads. What else? What the, what um, the fuck is he even talking about? You're, ju- he- you're just mad, Kurt, because they came out with this before you did. <laughs> You came out. Talk with about yours. commercial. Se- then he could call himself commercial. Uh, He's I a commercial know. sellout if you want to use the same standard. Think about it. Like what? But um, of course, Pearl Jam toured relentlessly in support of Ten. Um, I'm sure that they they were a huge demand um, oh God, for concerts that yeah. in that time. Um, early on in their career, the band became known for its in- their intense live performances. Um, looking back at this time, Vetter said that, quote, playing music and getting a shot at making a record and at having an audience and stuff, it's just like an untamed force, but it didn't come from jock mentality. It came from just being let out of the gates. You know, <laughs> this whole discussion of like them getting ragged on for being a commercial success, they were growing more and more uncomfortable with it. Um and a lot of that burden was falling on Eddie Vedder because he's the front man of the band. He's seen as, well, I mean, he really wasn't, but he's seen as the front man. Um, so <clears throat> they received four awards at the 1993 MTV VMAs for Jeremy. Um, they got a video of the year, best group video. Um, the band refused to make uh, videos after that. They wouldn't do one for Black, even though the label was pressuring them. And this became a trend with them moving forward. They just were like, no more videos, done. And uh, Vetter felt that the concept of music videos robbed the listeners from creating their own interpretations of the song. I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, He said, back at this time, he's quoted as saying, before music videos first came out, you'd listen to a song with headphones on, sitting sitting in a beanbag chair with your eyes closed. (laughs) And you'd sum up in your own vision... You know, and these things came from within. Then all of a sudden, um, sometimes it's the very time you've heard this first time you've heard the song and you're seeing it with these visual images and it robs you of any form of self-expression. Um, 
he said, you know, several of the guys were just saying, we don't want people to remember our songs as videos. Obviously, they missed the mark on this, and they're showing their age at the time. Kids aren't sitting in fucking beanbag chairs in 1970 listening to music anymore, Eddie Vedder. (laughs) They're watching fucking MTV, and most of your success probably came from MTV, but, you know. Nobody can be perfect. He's or close. Stre- or but... stretching out your headphones to show somebody else. <laughs> yes. <laughs> As you said before. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, so Pearl Jam goes into the studio again in 93. And now they've got the challenge that they have to follow up the commercial success of their debut album. I feel really bad for bands that get such huge success on their first album. I've always felt that. Sometimes I think you see, you know how you can feel like, oh, the first album was really great and the second album was really great. And then all the albums after that, what the fuck were they doing? It's a double edged sword for sure. Well, I think probably all the albums after that are really who they were as a band. You know, you're a lot more easily influenced as a young band by your producers, by your label, um, by what else is happening in music and the longer your career goes you have more control over your music and you've all solidified your style so i feel i i always feel badly um i think it's tough um so they released their second album verses and it sold 950,000 copies plus in its first week of release and outperformed all other entries all the entries in the billboard top 10 that week combined not just all the other entries but all the other entries combined fucking you think people had high expectations for this album jesus christ <laughs> it set the record for the most copies of an album sold in its first week of release i think garth brooks 10 years later um took over that record nah. um i think it was garth brooks right i'm pretty sure um Paul Evans of Rolling Stone, my favorite magazine, (laughs) um, said few American bands have arrived more clearly talented than this one did with 10 and versus tops even that debut. Fuck you. Um, The members declined to make any more music videos, like I said before, and they were doing fewer and fewer appearances and interviews. Um, industry insiders at the time compared Pearl Jam's tour that year to the touring habits of Led Zeppelin. They said the band ignored the press and took its music directly to the fans. During the Versus tour, the band set cap on ticket prices because they wanted to thwart the attempts of scalpers to gouge their um, audience members. So they're making massive changes in how they're approaching everything right now. No videos, Barely enter interviews, barely enter any t- television performances, any appearances. Um, and now they're starting to get really involved in how their shows are being booked and promoted. Yeah. Well, and then we get to the infamous Ticketmaster controversy yes. of 1994, where Pearl Jam was actually fighting Ticketmaster's practices. Yep. Uh, reporter Chuck Phillips actually broke a series of stories showing that Ticketmaster was actually gouging Pearl Jam's customers. Mm-hmm. Pearl Jam was, of course, outraged when after they played a pair of charity benefit shows in Chicago, actually, they discovered that Ticketmaster had added a service charge to the tickets. That's fucked up. That is super fucked up. I'm sorry. That's not cool. Mm-hmm. Is that not common practice now to add service charges to tickets, though? <laughs> it I mean, is. Maybe, at, maybe at that time? Yeah. At the time... 
It wasn't, and for a charity show, no one is supposed uh, it, to be profiting. Know, yeah. And that was the problem is that it was the charity, charity show. That's show. what yeah. that's what started the whole thing. So they actually sat down with Ticketmaster and were like, "Can you please refund just the just the um, service charge? They're still going to make their fucking money." Just the service charge. Can you please refund that? Because this was supposed to be a not-for-profit deal for everybody involved, and they refused. Mm-hmm. Fuckers. Gotcha. Uh, so Pearl Jam was actually committed to keeping their concert ticket prices down, but Fred Rosen of Ticketmaster actually refused to waive the service charge, mm-hmm. if you can believe that, uh, as Sailor said, for a charity show. Uh, since ticket since Ticketmaster at that time controlled most major venues, obviously it's very different now. Uh, but at that time they were the one, really. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. band was forced to create from scratch its own outdoor stadiums in rural areas in order to perform. I remember <laughs> this. I remember all of this. <sighs> and uh, you know their efforts to organize a tour without the giant uh, the ticket giant collapsed actually, which Pearl Jam said was evidence of Ticketmaster's monopoly. This was uh, all over the news at the time. Oh yeah. Like if you were back, if I you were there, yeah. If you were, I remember they were on the news constantly. It was all over MTV news. They were doing press conferences. So what made it so interesting is, like we just said, they stopped doing interviews. They weren't doing videos. All of a sudden, they're making appearances, but it's all press conferences to talk about this issue. So that made it, I think, even put them even more in the spotlight for it. And they really were trying to fight a giant. And I, I, I felt that their efforts were very genuine. Um, they got a couple other bands to kind of go in on it with them, but also at the same time, here you have Pearl Jam fighting to keep ticket prices affordable for their for their fans, and you have Metallica saying fuck you to the fans with the Napster. This is happening at the same time. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So there's obviously a lot more to this discussion, which we can, you know, pretty much do an entire show on, and we we'll will. probably get into that. Yes. Uh, so let's just sum this up for now. Uh, they canceled their '94 tour in protest. They weren't doing videos. They weren't doing interviews or even releasing singles. They pretty much had given up on anything that would push them, I guess, forward. Promote themselves. Promote themselves. Thank you, Sailor. And they were actually requesting that their music only come out on vinyl in 1994. (laughs) Good luck with that. (laughs) Yes. Wow. Yeah, vinyl was even, even back then was on the way out, you know? Oh, yeah, totally was. CDs had fully taken over yeah yeah, that time. yeah you couldn't have three people weren't interested in three formats not we even hipsters the CDs. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway pearl jam wrote and recorded while touring for uh verses and uh the the majority of the tracks for their next album vitology um during their breaks on the tour uh, tensions within the band had dramatically increased by this time, and their producer, Brendan O'Brien, said, Vitalogy was a little strained. I'm being polite, but there was some imploding going on. And imploding is never a good word when it comes mm, to bands. No. Um, <laughs> after Pearl Jam finished the recording of Vitalogy, drummer Dave Abruzzi was fired. Thank God we don't have to say his name anymore. Sorry, Dave. The band (laughs) said it was for political differences. Um, It seems he disagreed with the Ticketmaster boycott. Hmm. Interesting. 
So he was replaced by Jack Irons, a oh, close look, friend of Vetter. Oh, round and round we go. Before. Yeah. <laughs> um, the former and original drummer of RHCP. Yeah, we don't like um, to say their name around here. <laughs> Irons made his debut with the band at Neil Young's 1994 Bridge School Benefit, but he was not officially announced as the band's new drummer until 1995. By the way, I have been to two of the Bridge School Benefit concerts, and um, holy crap, I, some of the best shows of my life were... I, I saw... Um, Prince. It was the last time I ever saw Prince. Um, I saw Fleetwood Mac. They had just, um, I think it was 96 when I saw them, something like that. Um, oh, they're just amazing. Amazing. So anyway, uh, right, back to band. So um, <laughs> Vitology was released in November of 94 on vinyl. They got their wish. And then two weeks later on <laughs> CD and cassette. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you got excited there for a minute, huh? Yeah. <laughs> they they got what they wanted, sort of. Um, the CD, <laughs> poor guys, became the sat, second fastest selling in history, with more than eight hundred and seventy-seven thousand units sold in its first week. Fucking bonkers! Awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> um. So the song Spin the Black Circle won a Grammy in 96 for Best Hard Rock Performance. And um, the, you know, the popular songs on the album were Not For You, Corduroy, Better Man, um, and Immortality. I used to call that song Butterman. Um, oh, yeah, I remember that song. <laughs> Butterman. I actually changed the lyrics to the whole song. Maybe I'll sing it one day. So, uh, Butterman reached number one on the Billboard mainstream rock chart, spending a total of eight fucking weeks there. Good God. Um, it's considered a blatantly great pop song. Mm. So, the band was reluctant to record it, and they actually rejected it from verses, um, but decided to put it on Vitology. And I think, like, well, you know, depends on how they feel about their success these days. Whether they're happy they did it or not, I don't know. Um, they're still doing their boycott against Ticketmaster, um, for its 95 tour for this album. Uh, but you know, they were really upset because I think only two other bands joined in this boycott, which fucking sucks. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, damn, how, what, if everybody would have boycotted, imagine if all, even just the rock bands at the time just said, yeah, we're going to boycott this. You could have made real change. Yeah. Game, game changer. Yeah. Yeah, it, that sucks. Um, so they were playing at at uh, only at exclusively at non Ticketmaster venues. Um, it, it, so it really kept them from playing any decent U.S. shows for the next three fucking years. It really, really fucked them up. Um, Emmett later said, "We were so hard headed about the '95 tour, we had to prove we could tour on our own, and it pretty much killed our career." So we're gonna stop right here. We're going to get ready for our album battle and um, take a break while you guys listen to another Pearl Jam song. We'll be right back. Alone, last breakfast table in an otherwise empty room. The young girl, my only... All right, and we are back. 
So, let's get into this battle, my friends. We have 10, we have verses, and we have vitology, and we are going to see who wins tonight. Um, okay, let's go back to 10 just real quick. Came out in August of 91. Um, most of the songs on this album, interestingly, begin as instrumental jams. Um, <clears throat> it sold more than 13 million copies in the U.S. alone. And it is now regarded by a ton of music magazines as one of the greatest albums ever made. I don't know if I would go that far, but okay. Um, singles were Alive, Even, Flow, and Jeremy. And like I said earlier, 10 had been both recorded and released before Nirvana's Nevermind. So anyone who wants to argue that point can just fuck off. <laughs> uh, that year also, some of the songs and albums that came out, Temple of the Dog was all over the radio, Bad Motor Finger came out, Ozzy's No More Tears, um, Blood Sugar Sex Magic from the name, the band we won't name, U2's Octung Baby, Metallica's Black Album, and Nirvana's Nevermind. So, okay. Thoughts on this album, guys? This album, to me, is like their, their Paranoid. Another album, an album by Black Sabbath. It's got some of their biggest hits on it, and they're all up at the front of the album. That's amazing, because I made the exact same comparison last week with uh, Stone Temple Pilots and Core. It's like it was all at the front. Of, it was all front loaded. Yeah, yeah. But I'll tell you what. My my favorite two Pearl Jam songs are on this album. Alive is my favorite song. Like Even Flow is probably number two. But I mean, songs like Why Go Black, Jeremy. Um, even Porch, all great, great songs. Um, Oceans, Garden Deep, you know, I can take, I can take or leave. But uh, so many good, great hits on this, great songs on this. Regardless of whether they're hits or not, I think they're great. Um, and most of them are hits. But uh, yeah, what, again, this is one of these these rare bands where they just... You know, the first album out of the gate, they're just firing on all cylinders mm-hmm. and just amazing. And I think this is definitely one of the the most iconic albums of the 90s. Oh, for uh, sure. Rock movement, oh, yeah. For sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. For sure. Um, I think Black is one of the most beautiful rock. I don't want to call it a ballad. It's more of, it's I don't know. Ballad, yeah. It's not about, what do I know, you call I know what it? I know what you know what I'm trying saying. to say? I know. We yeah. need a term for it. Rock. Well, I you sl- you say that like ballad is a dirty word. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that I at mean, all. It, it's not a, I'm trying, because I'm, I'm trying to find another word for it, but um, a rock love song, slow song. I don't know no, what I to call it. I think ballad is a, it would be inappropriate. I don't think it's um, a ballad. It's not really no, a ballad, no. though. No. Okay. Anyway, it's one of the most beautiful rock songs I think it's such a beautiful, oh, yeah, beautiful song. Yeah. I mean, I loved it when it came out. I used to play it all the time. It was a breakup song for so many of my friends. Um, and then coming back to it, I, I mean, if you just appreciate the musicality of it, um, I found I, I like to find isolated tracks sometimes. And I removed Eddie Vedder from it. And it was still beautiful. I mean, his vo- voice is one of those voices from the gods, of course. But I find that just a beautiful, beautiful song. And um, Alive, I've been in a few situations where I have been involved in um, spontaneous sing-alongs in public places when that song has come on. So it's a goddamn good album. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. I am with you on the spontaneous sing-along thing, but that is, for me, that's once. Anytime once comes on, that's my sing-along song for this album. But, I mean, we've seen it so many times with this, you know, this time period, complete lightning in a bottle that these guys just catch, and they just put it on their first album. And we've gotten some of the greatest albums of a decade by these bands just lightning in a bottle. And I think this is another great example of it. Completely front-loaded. I completely agree with you, Ed. Yeah. But as with some of those other albums that are front-loaded and they can't quite carry it to the end, I think this has enough up front that it can carry you through some of those other songs that you're not too high on near the end. Just just an unbelievable, I mean, it's just an unbelievable album. It's, it's uh, you know, hearing it from front to back for the first time in many years, uh, you know, just, I mean, those first six songs, I mean, you can't, I mean, at any time in the world on any radio station, one of those six songs is playing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just incredible. And, um, you know, you said it about Eddie Vedder, um, and all, another all time voice. So, and he's at, you know, maybe not his absolute best here, but he is absolutely, um, just killing it on this album and the whole band too. I mean, Musically, like you said, Sailor taking the vocal track away and still beautiful, beautiful music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I happen to hate the song Jeremy. It's not a very popular opinion. Um, every time I say that, people are like, "What?" I really don't like that song. You <laughs> know all. what? I to me, the problem with Jeremy is I've got Jeremy fatigue over the years because mm. yeah. I think yeah. it was just so overplayed more than any other, in my opinion, more than any other. Song Jeremy's Pokemon. It's like every other hour it's on like the area. Uh, it's like the sex type thing, like with yeah. Stone, STP. I think we mentioned that last uh, week. Yeah, yeah. I think Jeremy falls victim yeah. to overexposure. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I always call it the Tom Petty song because back in the day when, well, first of all, I mean, I challenge anyone to turn on a radio in the U.S., a radio station, multiple platforms, by the way, and not hear a Tom Petty song once a day, at the very least. I don't care what station it is. They might even put it on fucking Latin stations. I don't know. (laughs) And when Pandora first came out, um, my ex-husband and I had this joke that didn't matter what station you created, like it could have been opera and a Tom Petty song would populate in it. Uh, So that's... Yeah, it Tom Petty's me. Uh. <laughs> All right, moving on. Two verses, which came out in October of 1993. Now, this is a more raw and aggressive sound compared to 10. Um, upon its release, as we said earlier, Versus set the record for most copies of an album sold in its first week. Um, that held that record for five freaking years. It occupied the number one spot on the Billboard 200 for five weeks. Um, it's been certified platinum seven times by the RIAA. The singles were Go, Daughter, Animal, and Descent. Um, a Descent, sorry. Um, and that year, you had Smashing Pumpkins' Siamese Dream come out, Nirvana's In Utero, Primus's Pork Soda, The Cranberries, Everybody Else, blah, 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 blah. They're, that title of that album so long. Um, the Breeders' Last Splash, Aerosmith's Living on the Edge, was all over the radio and TV, mm-hmm. along with Stone Temple Pilots, Plush, and Blind Melon um, was all over the radio and MTV as well. 
So that's what was happening at the time. What are your thoughts on the album versus guys? Yeah. You know, this go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Ed. Go. I like, this is another one of those albums where I'm only familiar with the hits mm. and, um, listened through the entire album and was not wowed by a lot of these songs on here. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just stick with the hits. Thank you very much off of this, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, album. Um, yeah. What, what's your take, Matt? Well, I was pleasantly surprised by this album. This is my first time hearing this album from front to back. And I got to say that most, obviously I've heard the hits, but you get with a lot of the times we talked on the show about that first album to that second album when your first album is so big. And they kind of went in the kind of opposite direction here because you're expecting kind of an evolution of sound, experimenting with different things on album two. But they go purely raw and purely aggressive kind of kind of taking what they did on their first album and really taking any frills that were on that album out and um you know to me i think what vetter does on this album is better than what he does on the first album some of the stuff he does with his voice on this album is absolutely insane uh really cool it's heavy it's aggressive like i said not what i was expecting um and Raw, as we said, uh, the hits are great. I think a lot of the in-between songs as well are great. Um, the riffs are groovy. They're driving riffs. Um, I was I was expecting to hate this album, but I actually really enjoyed it. I'm going to say I really enjoyed this album. I owned this album along with 10, and I saw them for this tour as well. I saw them for both tours. Um, I feel like... I don't know. I felt like it was a continuation of 10. I felt like it was what would come next after 10. Not the same, different, but nonetheless, you knew it was Pearl Jam. Um, it, it. I liked this album. Um, I don't know if I like it as much as I used to, though, listening to it now, which was weird. I didn't expect that to happen. So I'm kind of on the fence about this album, to be honest. Yeah. Um, all right, let's do uh, ten against verses, should we? Go for it. All right. Who wants to go first? If you have to throw one out and keep one, which one do you keep? Well, despite all the great things I just said about verses, <laughs> uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I honestly, I'm not bullshitting here. I think musically, it's a fantastic record. Um, but unfortunately, you're putting it up against the hit parade that is 10. Um, and I think that those songs have more staying power than the songs on verses. So I'm going to have to go with 10. Okay. Well, it's one for 10. Ed? Oh, I, I got to go 10. Um I mean, for all the reasons I said previously, um, if if every song on verses were to disappear off the face of the earth, but I still got to keep all the songs on 10, that would be fine with me. As, as, as much as I like some of the songs on verses, I mean, 10 just does it does it for me in all the right ways. Yeah, I totally awesome agree. Awesome album. 
Yeah. I, I have to go with 10 as well. There's no way. I, there's no way. Not over versus. No. So, all right. It's that's unanimous. We've all chosen 10. So sadly versus goes away. Wah, wah, wah. All right. The next we have Vitology, which came out in November of 94. Like I said before, it was released on, <laughs> on vinyl first. Um, then two weeks later on cassette and CD, uh, the LP sold 34,000 copies in its first week. That's pretty impressive for vinyl sales at that time. Um, Jack White knocked that uh, record out of the park in 2014 when he held the record with um, Lazaretto with the most vinyl sales in one week. Um, so uh, Vitology becomes the second fastest selling album in history. Um, and it's only behind <laughs> their previous release. Album has been certified uh, platinum five times. So that year you had Black Hole Sun and Spoon Man were all over the radio, Closer by Nine Inch Nails. You had Alice in Chains, Don't Follow, Interstate Love Song by STP, Welcome to Paradise by Green Day, and Jeff Buckley's incredible album, Grace, um, came out. Um, who wants to go first talking about this album? Okay, I have to make a major correction here, because when we were talking about verses, I mentioned the song Rats being the uh, coffee house song. It's actually Bugs. Oh, bugs! Bugs okay. on here. It's I the total. I hate that song, bugs. <laughs> like, I hate uh, that song. yeah, open That's mic. So gross. No, Weird. I well, yeah. I guess I don't know. Maybe I guess I just so. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I could I could ju- just see Eddie Vedder in a smoke-filled room, standing up there, sitting on a stool with this microphone oh, in like front of him. Oh, like spoken words. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm yeah. talking about. <laughs> you know, people who come up with some of the weirdest stuff. Yes. Yeah. But uh, Spin the Black Circle was a great song. I like that one. Um, What else was memorable? Corduroy. um, Corduroy's a huge hit. How does that one go? (laughs) Seriously? Exactly, Ed. Exactly. The the name just doesn't... Usually I I can visualize a song by the name, but Corduroy, I'm having a problem. Um... I, I just listened to this today too. Um, this song wasn't there. This album, I think, out of the three, I probably like the least out of the three. Um, oh, not for you. I know that song. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before. Um, uh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This, uh, I totally missed. This girl, I think by the time uh, 1984 came around, I don't know. I just totally missed out on this album. Um, I remember hearing Not For You on the radio. Um, Oh, Better Man. There is another one. That's the one. That's another one that I think got overplayed as well. Oh, God. On the radio. Butter Man. (laughs) Butter Man, yeah. So, but really, not for you and Better Man. Those are the two big songs up here that I, I can remember. Corduroy, maybe I'd have to hear it again to, to tell. But okay, here I'll play it for you. Hold on.
also an okay song. I, <laughs> I love that song. Okay, I think it's one of. I think it's one. Of I don't know if I if I'm not giving too much away. I'm just not a huge huge fan of well, this you album. Made that clear. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. Well, I'll be a little bit more clear and say that this album is just all over the fucking place. It's all over the place. Um, yeah. Good. I mean, it's describing it. It's an hour of mediocre music. Holy fuck. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, Whoa. it just, I mean, it just is. I mean, I could say that I like Better Man a lot, but I think it falls into that syndrome again of being overplayed. And it just completely turns me off when I hear it now. Uh, I'll give you one on Corduroy. I'll give you one on that. Of Corduroy. But out of an album that's got 14 songs on it, that's almost an hour compared to the first two albums. I'll pass. I didn't like it. Didn't like it at all. Well, uh, all right. I'm going to disagree with you guys. I really like this album. Coming back to it to prepare for this show, I like it more than I did in the past. Um, Because I think I was comparing everything to 10. I really like this album. I would pick this album over Versus. So should we bring out Versus again and do it that way? <laughs> so you're going to need to invoke another Sailor Room. No, or... I'm not. I'm just and asking still, you guys. Uh, oh. No, I'm asking you guys. So if you had to do Vitology against Versus, you would all choose Versus, Oh, correct? Versus, hands down. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Versus. So then I think we have a clear winner because if yeah. you can't choose... You're definitely not going to choose Vitology over 10. And if you're not going to choose Versus over 10, then 10 wins, which it's not surprising. I I don't (laughs) think that's going to surprise anybody. But what I like about it is I like that I went back to confirm that. Although, different from you guys, I would choose Vitology over Versus. I think it's a better album. Um, I like the fact that I just went through and listened to all these albums from front to back for the first time. Oh, I loved. I've listened to them from front to back before, but I've loved going back to them now with perspective and history, and that's what's been so fucking great about doing this podcast. And I know we say that often, but um, it, you know, if you guys were for the listeners, if you were in our shoes, you would understand that you know we immerse ourselves in the subject of the week for about a week or two, depending. And and when I tell you, I'm listening to mostly just. The band that we're going to talk about, I really am. And I'm mm-hmm. watching YouTube videos and interviews. And so you really immerse yourself and it gives you it's it's really interesting how my feelings have. I think it's interesting how my feelings have changed. My I think this is the most change I've had in all of the other shit we've covered the whole time. What year and a half now we've been doing this podcast. I think I understand what it is. It came to me when I was listening to Pearl Jam yesterday. I think I was angry at metal at this period in time because metal had turned to shit in my opinion. And so I'm listening to stuff that's being played on the radio, which is unusual for me because our metal really wasn't not the Mm -hmm. like real metal stuff. And I think I'm going, well, I'm listening to this stuff and it's okay, but I'm only listening to it because I'm pissed off at metal because there's no good metal coming out. And I don't think that's the case. And it, well, I mean, yeah, there wasn't good metal coming out, but 
I do genuinely, I have a better view and opinion on this. Everything we've covered this month, I would say. Yeah, it certainly helped me garner an appreciation for this window of time and the music that was coming out and popular at this time. Definitely puts it under a microscope for me, which mm-hmm. is fucking aw- fucking awesome. Because mm-hmm. I'm the end now. I'm like I'm envious of those of you that have lived through this time and are able to remember it and the music actually being released and being able to appreciate it, appreciate it at the time it was released and not in retrospect like I have to, unfortunately. <laughs> I think my biggest takeaway from this, um, these retrospect episodes was the fact that it's pretty much kind of invalidating the term grunge. Yeah. In my yeah. mind more than anything else. I mean, agreed. Yep. 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 I think I that totally in, agree. yeah, what I consider grunge is more of like a style trend or something like that than an actual um, music def- defined music by a band. Um, mm, I don't know if I, I would agree maybe with gr- that. The closest thing I can think of to grunge would probably be Nirvana. Um, I think but, it exists. I think that exists, but I don't think it's the bands that everyone seems to plug. Into no, that bands category. got lumped into it, but I think the, yes, the sound they were. We call it down tuned now. Yeah. I mean, that sound didn't go away. It just changed. It mm-hmm. was, you know, they call it drudge metal and doom metal and all this, like, down-tuned shit that they, you know, like, that some of the metal and hardcore bands were doing in the early 2000s. That kind of sound didn't go away. We we left the high, we left the, like, Eddie Van Halen's behind and the high notes and all of that. And it was just a grungier, dirtier sound. It wasn't as polished. It wasn't as, you know trebled and all of that from the 80s i think that's and i would agree with that that it it has a you could they could have called it raw but it came out grunge i i think it still is fair to have it be a musical genre i just think that a lot of the bands that were lumped into it did not have that sound and to be also to be criticized for it is even more absurd (laughs) You yeah, know, there, for, yeah. Know. and also the trend uh, seems to be for the lyrics. Now, there's all there's exceptions in every case, but the trend for more popular songs seem to be go a little more, a little darker, a little more serious as far as the lyrics and subject matters go. Uh, back in the '80s, most of the popular songs, you know, in rock were all kind of upbeat partying oh, you yeah, know it was all Marley crew poison yeah. all those you know yep. um and yeah it really took a turn in yep. the uh 90s as to what was popular um songs remember when about skid rose 18 drugs to life and mental came health out? and yeah remember yeah. people were like so like oh my god 18 to life it was like actual content and people were right. shocked <laughs> shocked by it because right. we were coming off of cherry pie and you right. know <laughs> fucking whatever crap poison was singing about and the bullshit motley crew was singing about none of it was like yeah it was all party party fun stuff and then i also think that this period and time made rock more i don't know people had permission to listen to rock somehow that didn't feel like they were rock appreciators before i don't i'm not articulating myself correctly but just the fact that this was all pop i mean 
call it what you want, but the popular music means it's played on the radio ad nauseum and it's what mo- the majority of people are listening to um, and watching. So therefore this is all pop music as well. All of it, popular, all of the bands yeah. that are, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's exposure. I mean, yeah. That's all pop means. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting time. Mm-hmm. In music history, I think this period is very interesting. And I'm super excited to go into next week's band as well when we finish off this month of 90s alt rock because we're really going to shift things. And I'm very, very excited about that. I think it's just going to kind of show the strangeness that was <laughs> going on at that time which i love <laughs> i just can't wait to see what uh what names that band played around with before selling oh. on their final name i'm sure there's something good to add to our list of growing uh, growing inappropriate names here yeah we could make a um we can make an album and make the song titles all of these band names that didn't make it i mean (laughs) it would be cool i guess all right i agree that was fun that was a ton of fun so listeners thank you for sticking around as always we hope you enjoyed that discussion as much as we here at metal rock and whiskey always do and as always you can find us on the instagrams and the twitters at metal rock whiskey and we also have a super cool Facebook group under the name Metal Rock Whiskey. No. Not anymore. Oh. <laughs> this is the second week in a row. My bad. Yeah, <laughs> two weeks in a row. It is under the Spirit of Rock Podcast Network. Yo. Which under that umbrella you will find all of our shows. Metal Rock and Whiskey, Pretty Good for a Girl, Wrestling with Respect, and Love on the Rocks. Yeah. And you can also follow us individually on Instagram. You can find me, the guy that screws up his read every week, <laughs> uh, at the Whiskey Obsessor. That is Whiskey Save the E Sailor. You can find me as Sailor Retro all over the internet. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and the Facha Book. That's Facebook. Um, <laughs> hey, the Facha Book. Yeah, <laughs> since we're doing Italian tonight, I I'd <laughs> throw a little bit in there. Um, <laughs> So there's also, um, so, you know, we announced a couple weeks ago that um, I launched the Spirit of Rock uh, podcasting network, which is really exciting. So you guys may have seen a change depending on the platform you use. It may look like the thumbnail picture to every podcast is the Spirit of Rock thumbnail that we can't control. But we wanted all the shows to be under one header so you don't have to subscribe to 10 different shows and 10 different channels. And you can keep up with everything that we're doing. And we feel that all of our shows kind of all relate to each other. So we figured you would probably like all of them. Um, If you don't, you just don't have to listen. Uh, So (laughs) you can also uh, follow Spirit of Rock pod all over the Internet as well. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Bourbon Geek. And hey, listeners, if you love us or even just like us, please, we ask you to hit that subscribe button. Give us a review because it really does matter big time. 
And of course, tune in next week for another episode of the Metal Rock and Whiskey podcast. And before I say my fuck you for the week, I just want to insert one tiny little thing that's related to subscribing. Let me tell you a quick story. There is a podcast that I absolutely loved. I listened to it religiously. It had advertising on it. Fine. I'll listen to the advertising. Um, Don't mind. And uh, I went to listen to it this week and poof, it was gone. I mean, it's still there, but all the fucking shows are gone. I think it was the pilot episode that's left. This podcast removed all of their content because they went to a pay to listen only service fucking bullshit in my opinion like what the fuck you already had advertising you're getting advertiser money um i'm not gonna be down on anybody for trying to make money of course everyone wants to make a good living and have a nice life but my god bad move um all the recent reviews are <laughs> just not good. Everybody just like, damn, you know, wh- why the fuck would you do that? At least for your early subscribers, let us li- keep listening or at the very least leave your old shows out there. Mm-hmm. But um, bad move. So subscribing helps us speak to um, sponsors and say, hey, you know, there are people that this many people have subscribed to us. They listen to us regularly. So if you know, uh, you want to put an ad on our show to help us out with costs, um, it's a big, it's a big help to us. So just a little bit of like real world info on why that subscribe button is so important. Even if you don't listen to it, um, you know, in a format where you need to subscribe, it still helps us out. And, uh, I think I'm still going to say, fuck you, Rolling Stone magazine this week. So, bye-bye. Later, everyone. Bye. This podcast is edited by Ed Dirsch, produced by me, Sailor Retro, with research by Matt LaRusso.